Stefan Kinsella. Hi, Stefan. How are you? This is Greta. Hey, Greta. Um, thank you for being agreeing to be a part of my project. I really appreciate it. No problem. So I gave you a little primer on what it's about already, but basically this is just supposed to be a conversation. Um, it's all qualitative. There's nothing in particular I'm looking for. I'm really just curious about how ideology plays out or like values play out on an individual level. Um, so yeah, basically anything you have to say is interesting and useful for me. Okay. So to kick it off, I would really like to hear about how you became a libertarian. Um, okay. And I can give you a link to an article I've written on how I became a libertarian. <laughs> so I've actually written on it. Um, if that would help you. It's called How I... Well, there's actually a book by Walter Block. Uh, I forgot who referred you to me. Uh, oh, was it... Um, Gene did. Gene, Gene Epstein, yeah. yeah. Uh, have you heard of Walter Block or talked to him yet? Yes, a little bit. But I haven't, okay. I haven't interviewed him. I've just been sort of like lightly in contact. Yeah, he's a good person to talk to. He's probably one of the chief libertarian thinkers and figures out there. Mm -hmm. I think he's from the old days. He knew Ayn Rand and Murray Rothbard. He's a, oh, I think he knew. But anyway, um, he, he actually uh, compiled a book about five years ago. Um, it's on his website, walterblock.com. Um, and it's like uh, it, my, my articles in there as a chapter. It's basically uh, short articles with different libertarians about how they became libertarian. So there's actually a wealth of uh, cool. biographies of fairly prominent or well-known libertarians in that book. Sweet. Well, uh, definitely telling, look telling their that. stories. Yeah, I would also like like I'll definitely read it, but I would like to hear it in your own words right yeah. now as well. Yeah, and so I was. Uh, Let me summarize it like the best linear way possible. Mm -hmm. um, so I was just a uh, say middle class kid from Louisiana. I was adopted, and uh, not that it matters too much, but I I do. And I was also small when I was younger, so uh, so I was bullied a good deal in school. And uh, I'm just mentioning that because I think it kind of played a role in what attracted me to libertarianism. But I was a smart kid in private schools, but living in the country, sort of, in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. uh, in high school, I went to a Catholic high school, and I was just interested in general in philosophy and, um, you know, science fiction, all that kind of stuff. And the librarian at the high school knew what we talked about books a lot, and she knew I was a, a book nerd, and she recommended... Oh, I must have been 11th grade or something. She recommended I read Ayn Rand, The Fountainhead. She said, I think you'll like it. So I read Ayn Rand, The Fountainhead, and that's kind of what basically started it all off. And I just loved her stuff. I loved the philosophy. Uh, I became basically an instant libertarian um, in her sense. Now, she hasn't. She doesn't use the word libertarian. She doesn't like libertarians, but she calls her philosophy capitalism, which is basically her political philosophy in a way. Mm -hmm. And it's, bas it's basically the same as what we call minarchist libertarianism or minimal state libertarianism. Mm -hmm. So I just devoured her stuff, her, her fiction, her nonfiction. And, and, and then she suggested, like, read Ludwig von Mises, who's the chief Austrian economist, and Henry Hazlitt, who's a free market economist and libertarian writer. And uh, so I started reading tons of other stuff through her and then you know one one thing leads to the other and there were at the time this is in the 80s so this is say 82 there's probably 81 or so when i was in 11th grade and 12th grade you know in, into college i just sort of devouring 
economics. I mean, economics and, and political theory and philosophy and lots of libertarian writings. Uh, Frederick Bastiat, then Murray Rothbard, people like that. So um, I guess I just became kind of a hardcore evangelist and kind of a Randian for a while, but really libertarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I got started. And so I went to, I was an engineer in college, but I really liked the the social sciences. I liked the philosophy. I liked economics. So I would read that on the side. And eventually I went to law school partly because I just, my interest, I didn't think I wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to do things more with words and with justice and with law. Um, so, yeah, and, I, and because I'm kind of bookish and I like to write, I started writing like occasionally in college a few columns for newspapers on free market topics, things like that. Um, probably around law school time, I, I finally became an anarchist libertarian, like Rothbard persuaded me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the Randians were too tentative or too uh, too cons- too cautious of in their, in, well, they were just wrong in their minicism, like in their, so I, I went all the way with it. And wow. the reason I brought the bullying thing, I think that the, um, I think just kind of my, my extreme distaste for this kind of, you know, the violence and the, the unfairness of, of people picking on people, like physical bullying, I kind of think that might be what made made it resonate with me, just kind of like the extreme justice notion that, you know, you only have these rights, you only have certain rights, um, and those rights are property rights in your body, and there should be no exceptions. That's kind of what makes libertarians maybe different than, say, your average moderate person in America who is, I think like most Americans are like are like soft libertarians in that they're, they kind of would say they're for... Uh, they're for economic, uh, you know, moderation. You know, they don't want to have a communist state where everyone's taxed 100. Mm-hmm. percent But they're also for social social liberties. That's sort of the soft libertarian line. Like we're for social rights or civil rights, and we're for economic rights. It's just the libertarians take that to uh, an extreme. Like yeah. we try to be extremely consistent about it. Yeah. Um, so make no exceptions. For sure. Um. But then, so, like, we live in a world where there aren't very many libertarians running for office, obviously. So, so what, talk me through what you think through as a voter, then. Okay, so, I think of myself as a libertarian with a small L, and I do think that's important to distinguish. A lot of outsiders, people who don't, who aren't libertarians, kind of confuse us with the big L libertarians, which, to us, is the members of the Libertarian Party. Yeah. So... Libertarianism for me is just a political philosophy. It's, it's the belief you have in, in what laws there should be or what rights people have. Mm-hmm. It's got almost nothing to do necessarily with what you think about voting. Or like, Lots of libertarians, especially lots of anarchist libertarians like me, lots of us don't, don't even vote. Like we don't, some of us think that voting is immoral um, mm-hmm. and that it's actually wrong to vote because you're participating in the system. So they would turn that old expression, um, if you don't vote, you can't complain. And they would say the other way around, if you vote, you can't complain. Mm-hmm. Because you're legitimizing the system, so you can't really complain about whatever comes out of it. Yeah. Um, so I don't really share that belief necessarily, that it's necessarily immoral to vote, but I also think it's com- it's totally pointless and impractical. It, it does nothing um, because the way democracy works, no yeah. one's vote. Even no on a local level, or like small local governments? Governance? Sorry. Uh, I 
mean, different libertarians have different views. Um, um, the ones that tend to be involved in, in the in the LP and the party, um, they of course tend to vote, um, mm-hmm. and they try to urge people to vote. Um, in the past, I, I vote sporadically myself. When I vote, I've always voted libertarian, except when there wasn't a libertarian running. Then I would vote for the Republican if I, unless I knew who he was mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was horrible. Yeah. So that's kind of how I tended to do it. Um, but I've never voted for the Republican over the Libertarian, um, except my very first election when I was for Reagan in '84. When I didn't know, I was still forming my views. But yeah. um, um, I, I, so the way I think of Libertarians is so you have like you can think of li- three types of Libertarians. One would be like philosophical mm-hmm. Libertarians, um, and that would include people that are more scholarly or more academic. Mm-hmm. or more intellectual, like me. Like they, I, They've read a lot of the, the theory works, economics works. Sometimes they write articles. And then you have people that are, you would just describe them as libertarian because of the way they act in life. Like They don't hurt people. Mm-hmm. So they're like a natural libertarian. Like My grandma, in a way, is kind of a libertarian without knowing it because she wouldn't hurt a fly, you know? Yeah. Um, and then you have the activist libertarians, right? The people that are out there acting trying to push for social change mm-hmm. primarily through politics but also through think tanks and things like that where you know they write they write articles they publish they write editorials they write letters to the editor they give speeches yeah they go to marches they and then they they they, they vote and they try to elect candidates for office and i'm kind of one of those in the sense that i write articles because i'm a kind of a uh so I'm not just like a libertarian reading stuff and interested in it on the side. I'm actually one of the producers of like content because it's just one, been one of my hobbies. Mm-hmm. So, so as for voting, um, the LP itself, um, there was something interesting. I don't know if you know, but like uh, <clears throat> a, a large contingent of people from the Mises Institute wing of things, which tends to be Austrian economics and anarchist oriented. That's sort of my wing, the Rothbard wing, Walter Block wing. Mm-hmm. Hans-Hermann Hoppe, me, uh, uh, they tend to be sort of uh, out, they tended to be out with the LP, just like there was a split between Cato and Mises in, in the last 30 years because of the interesting history of it, how Rothbard left mm-hmm. left the Cato and helped found Mises, which angered the Koch brothers, and it was there's all this stuff out there which is fascinating. I could <laughs> tell you where to read more on it if you're curious, but yeah. um, uh, a lot of that's in the Rothbard Rockwell Report, which is online at buns.org, unz.org. It's hard to it. find otherwise. Cool. But uh, Rothbard and Rockwell were that. Rockwell's the chairman of the Mises Institute, and Rothbard mm-hmm. was the chief, the chief guy there. In any case, um, so about a year ago, a group called the Libertarian Mises Caucus, who I think is a guy named Michael Heise on on Facebook, he kind of started at H E I S E, and they basically tried to like have a kind of a, a like a little takeover of the leadership of the LP at their convention a year or two ago, and, and, and get more Mises and radicals in there. Uh, they lost, but they're, they're still a sizable contingent. Um, so the complaint is that you know if we're going to have a libertarian party. It's never going to. It's probably not going to actually win because it's a minority party, and in our 
if we had a parliamentary system, it might be a different story because if you get, you know, a sizable minority, it can make a difference. But in the U.S., it's a more of a winner-take-all system. Yeah. So the, so you tend to have a binary two-party system that dominates. Yeah. And any third party is, is basically doomed. So, like, Rothbard recognized that, even though he helped found the LP in 74, whenever it was. And I think the thought was that if we're going to have a party, the main purpose should be education. Like, we should stick to a consistent position so the people, the, the public actually learns about our principles mm-hmm. from our platform. And from even though it means we're so radical, like we want to abolish all drug laws, you're not going to get a lot of votes. But we're not going to get a lot of votes anyway. So might as well stick to principle because if you start selling out and watering down our message and saying, well, maybe cocaine should be criminal, but at least marijuana should be decriminalized. If such, such a watered down message in a, in, a, in a vain attempt to get more votes because you don't sound as radical and scary to the average voter, yeah. then you're still going to lose, but now you've watered down even the educational message of what we're trying to do, so what's the point? Yeah, it's like an and integrity so then thing. you had some people who, like, um, I think in the last 20 years, I, I, you know, they, they said, well, let's work within the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. So they had they had the Libertarian Republican Organizing Committee for a while, Elrock. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's still around. And then there's the Radical Liberty Caucus or something. So there was two sort of libertarian caucuses in the Republican Party. And so then you have people like Rand Paul and Justin Amash who are kind of quasi-libertarian Republicans. Yeah. So um, and actually... then some people, some people have said maybe we should do that with the Democrats. But I think the, the thinking of most libertarians is that Democrats are just way too far gone on economics to – for us to even have a chance of persuading them of something, whereas there are some Republicans that have some sense and you could make some progress with them. Yeah. And you think that is like the fundamental reason that libertarians connect more with Republicans? Is because like economics are more salient with Republicans? I think, yeah, I think, I think so. I think, um, although it's, there's lots of dispute about this in the libertarian movement. Like there's a sizable number of left libertarians, mm-hmm. uh, like, uh, Roderick Long and well, the C4SS, where I used to be on the board, but I, I resigned uh, when one of their members just went way too anti-capitalist for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin Carson, who I hardly consider a libertarian, he's kind of a mutualist on the far edge of things. But Roderick Long is like probably the best left libertarian. He's very solid, very anarchist, very knowledgeable about Austrian economics, but he's more on the left side of property type issues. Um, um, so, so a lot of libertarians say that our roots are really in liberalism, um, mm-hmm. which was, which was more of a left, in a way, a left movement than, than, than the old right. But a lot of the old right figures that we came out of, like Albert J. Nock and, uh, Frank Chodorov and even H.L. Meek and those kind of guys, most people think of them as right figures, but I don't know if conservatives would, the problem is conservatism is such a, um, um, uh, it's an ill-defined term. Like, like, like the left is now. You have social democrats and you have progressives and you have true commie lefties. Mm-hmm. So it's a weird, it's a weird grab bag. But on the right, it's like you have this bizarre alliance of um, Christian conservative types who really aren't necessarily even free market. They're just Christian cultural conservatives. And then you have that the more majority types, right? Mm-hmm. Then you have the neocon sort of warhawk types like, um, oh, Crystal and these guys, 
And then you have the, cham- the Chamber of Commerce free market types. And I think that's the best part of the Republican Party. These are the guys that just want to do business. They want to have a free market. Mm-hmm. And they sort of appreciate the Constitution to a degree. They're kind of constitutionalists because they think that the Constitution, um, if interpreted like it was supposed to have been, would have resulted in, in more of a free market than we have now. So um, I think that's probably the the main reason we have an affinity with the Republicans is because um, a lot of these free market types that are interested in economics, mm-hmm. um, as long as they're, they have this also this American liberal spirit in terms of civil liberties, First Amendment, then they tend to be right to become libertarians because they are already for civil liberties and they're already for the Constitution and they're mm-hmm. already for free markets. So if you kind of get really interested in all that, um, and also because Ayn Rand, like herself, was I would say the the chief the chief originators of libertarianism in a modern sense because I think it started in the fifties yeah. with Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand, Milton Friedman, I would say were the two figures, yeah. the two chief figures. Uh, then there's a couple of subsidiary ones like Rose Wilder Lane and uh, um, um, Henry Hazlitt and uh, Lena Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education, and then Rothbard. So that was kind of the original cluster of significant people and of course rand was so anti-communist and so loved america so much because she came here mm-hmm. to get away from that she kind of had this reverence for the constitution and she just absolutely despised socialism mm-hmm. so i think that's one reason why they they would just tend to naturally hate democrats yeah uh, she also hated the religious right conservatives like reagan because of the abortion stuff but by and large, you can have a good Republican on occasion, I think, in their view. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the reason. I think some libertarians would give a different – they would have a different view, but I do think that there's more affinity between Republicans and uh, libertarians than between Democrats and libertarians. Yeah. And I've – so, I mean, I ask this of a lot of people because, as you probably know, most libertarians, when they do vote, vote Republican – um, and most of the responses I get really just talk about, like, the economic side of things. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like, communism is horrible. Republicans will do the communist will, like, fight against that. Um, why do you think, if you have any idea, like, why don't the civil rights aspect come up when I talk well, to Well, I think it's because that? the civil rights aspect is, um, I think that in the U.S., I, look, if you look at the Supreme Court decisions... Uh, you know, like the flag burning case was decided by a conservative, mm-hmm. voted against by a Democrat. So, like on the Supreme Court, my general sense is that over the last, say, 40 years, 50 years, the conservatives tend to be about as good as the liberals on civil liberties. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's kind of unpredictable. So, and the civil liberties protection is pretty strong in this country. I, I don't think even most even most moral majoritarians really want to have a government official Christian law in the country. You know, it, mm-hmm. there's a strong so there's not as much concern about the First Amendment um, and even the Fourth Amendment, that kind of thing, being infringed. So the main concern is the is, is just the, the increasing amount of taxation and government spending and regulation of business, which is the economic side. So yeah. I just think that they see the, the government as a bigger threat. And from our point of view in the U.S., the government, what the government wants is they want power and control, which means they're really after our, 
the wealth in the country. Mm-hmm. They don't mind letting us express a free opinion as long as they can still tax us. So they let us get away with our civil liberties because it doesn't cost them that much. But if they let us get away with tax evasion, it would cost them the money. Yeah, that <laughs> so makes sense. I think, I think that's the kind of reason. is, um, um, And then I think also the reason is... Uh, um, I think most libertarians, the way I think of it is if you're a libertarian, you're basically just someone who's a decent, normal person who has got a a, a pretty good degree of economic literacy. Like most liberals, if they understood like that, these policies that they push, like the minimum wage and things like that actually harm the people they're trying to help. Mm -hmm. They might rethink. They just don't, they just don't have a, you know, they weren't taught good economics or they don't think in those terms. Yeah. Um, but if, if the Republicans tend to have more of a common sense about uh, about free market issues, and so you can make some headway with them, or maybe yeah. some of them evolve into becoming libertarians. Got it. That's just kind of my take. I was I was personally neither one. I was never conservative. I was agnostic. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't have the, the experience <laughs> of, of being a, a neocon right winger type. Yeah. No, that's um, super I helpful. Was, I just came from nothing. I went from a vacuum. Like I had never experienced political philosophy until I read Rand, and I just. I just became a libertarian yeah. from nothing. That's also really rare. So that's super, it's like cool for me to get to talk to someone where that was their like first political standpoint. Yeah. A lot, a lot of them were, were, were commie, like lefties, like yeah. Walter Block. And even my, my, my main mentor is Hans Hermann Hoppe, who was a lefty when he was young. He was from Germany. So yeah. natural, but, but, um, but yeah, um, um, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've talked to a lot of the like ex communist anarchists, now libertarians. <laughs> Um, so wait, actually, let's say, okay, hypothetically, let's say we started over with a libertarian system in the U.S. tomorrow. Um, mm-hmm. do you think that would be fair to people who have traditionally found it hard to move up in society? Well, um, that's a complicated question. Um, first of all, I think that, uh, in, in a, tr- the transition to getting somewhere is different than the end result. If we, if we just imagine we, we were living in a libertarian system mm-hmm. and it depends upon whether you mean like a, 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 a an ultra minimal estate, like a minarchist system or an actual anarchist system that could make a difference. But, um, if you imagine, um, um, that we're in a, in a libertarian system, I think there'd be vastly more social mobility than we have now. So it would be fair in the sense that everyone would have a greater chance um, of advancing, and mm-hmm. I think everyone would be much much wealthier. Even the poor would be much wealthier. So everyone's uh, um, uh, welfare would be way higher. Um, now, the transition from a system to a system can be a problem. The libertarian would say that's the problem with having a state in the first place is that it it makes um, it makes extricating yourself from it almost impossible without hurting someone. Mm-hmm. But in a way, that's that's just nothing other than to say that the damage has already been done. Um, it, it's like the Austrian business cycle theory is that you know the government gets a boom going, dislocates things, then we have a crash, and that cycle keeps repeating. And yeah, if we switch to a hard money system tomorrow, we would have the mother of all recessions because that damage has been built into the system, and it's it's got to be liquidated. And if it doesn't get liquidated, by the recession, the recession is viewed by the libertarians as like a cleansing thing. Like when a, when a, when a, when a guy on the drugs who's addicted, when he goes cold turkey, he has uh, 
he has withdrawal pains. Mm-hmm. But that's just being restored to health. It's, it's, that's the pain he's suffering while his body is restoring itself to health. That's how we view the recession, right? But yeah. the point is, if you say, well, we, we can't stop inflating the money because we'll have a recession, then that's the whole problem that we've locked ourselves into is that if we don't wean ourselves off of this, then the problem grows worse under the surface. And it will come eventually. It'll just be way more painful. But people say, well, I don't care. I'd rather, I'd rather have a greater pain in 50 years than a, than a big pain right now. They keep kicking the can down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a sense, I think something like that is true of social change as well. Um, now, as a matter of reality, I don't think we're ever going to get libertarianism in, by someone snapping their finger. It won't be imposed no. <laughs> by dictate. Unless, unless some alien race lands down here. And they, yeah. <laughs> we have they, libertarian they warlords. <laughs> some libertarian overlords like in rush 2112 and they say we've assumed control and they just say we we're gonna have little robots everywhere that they will zap you if you try to steal from anyone and crime just disappears overnight um so it's gonna happen gradually if it happens at all yeah and and so the the process would be gradual and it wouldn't be like there'd be one class of people who was dispossessed Mm -hmm. i think that question you're asking makes more sense um it's sort of what's behind the, the left libertarians opposition to property rights and land because they see this thing like in England, the, what they call the enclosure movement. When the government came in and officially uh, granted like government granted title to all the previous landholders and that sort of in a way dispossessed some kind of quasi rights that the, the people had like hunting rights, foraging rights, rights of passage. Mm-hmm. So you can see how when the government comes in and institutionalizes or makes property titles and land official in a way it's a taking of some rights like you could call them easement rights um, Mm -hmm. of the public so you can see how there's a little bit like this land reform kind of stuff you can see how there's a little a little truth to the left libertarians complaint about property rights but it's not it's not an objection to property rights per se it's really in my view it's it's an objection to um what happens with property rights when the government gets involved, when the state gets involved? Mm-hmm. You know, just like if they run the roads, the roads are going to be horrible. If they run the law, the law is going to be unjust in certain ways as well. Yeah. But that's an indictment of the state, not an indictment of, of, of true capitalism or true, a true free society. No. And what's really interesting about that, and like not even just in this conversation, but like as I've been talking to libertarians, it seems to be sort of like a testament to a belief that like, people in general treat each other with kindness and like if we go back like the base human state is like care for one another um yeah and so you could and that's sort of i mean i think thomas Sowell argued this in his book a conflict of visions it's more about the left right divide about what is your and you hear this among conservatives and people like they think that the distinction between the the, the progressives and the conservatives is basically this view, this view of the perfectibility of human nature, mm-hmm. um, sort of the lefties are kind of utopians. They think that the state can, we have a new communist man, we can change our nature from being horrible and greedy and selfish. So this is why Rand re- rejects all that. It's like she doesn't think it's immoral to be self-interested. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I actually agree with her. I, I don't, I personally don't believe humans are good or bad. Mm-hmm. I think that we, ha- we have the capacity for good. And we have free will, and therefore we have the capacity for evil. I just think that there are certain natural, um, there are certain natural um, sy- systemic reasons why bad things emerge or bad people emerge. And 
one is like just the prisoner's dilemma and all the stuff that public choice theory, which is sort of a free market school of, of thought, explains why people, uh, it's, and especially in the context of a state, once you have a state, I think the state is what corrupts human nature because the state, for a large state, states tend to grow. And for large, you're not just a little village where everyone knows each other. Then you start having this war of special interests against special interests, and it, you, you basically get a war of all against all through the means of politics, right? Where everyone's trying to get their piece of the pie because they know that if they don't, someone else will. So everyone starts, groups are in opposition to each other. You know, women's against this, blacks against this, mm-hmm. union workers against this, public school teachers against this group. Everyone is basically a threat to everyone else. So they're always fighting through politics to, so it's wasteful. It's wasteful activity and it, it creates overall impoverishment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I do it. I don't think people are naturally good or bad. Um, I mean, if anything, I have more random. I think they're naturally good. And I, I think that what's going to happen myself is that as technology um, um, keeps to improve, keeps improving, which it will because the nature of technology is that the more technical knowledge the human race acquires, that the more efficient we become in our methods. That This is why I believe the human race keeps getting richer is because um not because we have more stuff because the earth is finite but because we get more uh technical recipes every year mm-hmm. and and that is the that's the reason why we're so rich even though the government does everything it can to slow it down yeah um and, and so I, what i think is going to happen is as the as the as the number of humans keeps increasing which is good because it increases the number of geniuses out there who can come up with new ideas, and it also increases the division of labor um, and the specialization of labor. Um, and as technology increases, and as the you know uh, the ability to communicate with encryption increases, and as maybe Bitcoin takes off and starts eroding the government's power over money, which is one of their key sources of income, is this power over money. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think so. I don't think liberty is going to arise because of a libertarian activism. I don't think this is going to rise because Rothbard wrote a book. I think of ourselves as what, what uh, I think Nock called the remnant. We're just like keeping the flame alive, trying to keep the knowledge of economics and political science and liberty alive so that people can keep rediscovering it as they get more ready for it. Mm-hmm. So I just think it's going to emerge because it's just the most efficient and cheapest way. And in a, in a cosmopolitan, large, rich world, people will become naturally more libertarian. Yeah. When we're richer, there's, there's, there's less need for crime. I yeah. mean, you can get anything you want. Theft will just disappear because if you want my car, here, take it. I'll print another one up. I, I don't care, you know? Yeah. It, I think, and now I'm talking way down the road, but I think that the fate of the human race, if we don't kill ourselves with some kind of gray goo or nuclear weapons or something or set ourselves back. Um. I mean, I think the government is retarding progress, like yeah. this whole global warming thing and, and taxation and the patent system, uh, trade barriers. All this stuff is like a huge drag on the growth of the human race. But I think it's still growing. Yeah. And maybe maybe it'll finally grow big enough where the government becomes irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. I see where you're going with that. Um, I actually just only have one more question left, which is the sure. same. I end with the same question for everyone. Um, which is, do you think that racism and sexism are prevalent in America today?
problem is those terms are so non-rigorously defined quite often. Mm-hmm. But if you take if you t- if you take a reasonably charitable view of what racism and sexism are, um, and it, 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 yeah, um, I would say that uh, there is racism and sexism in the reverse sense. Of course, for example, there are policies. Um, well, there's like there's racism against white males in a sense, right? Because they're the one group that can be discriminated against. So that is a, a form of racism. Could you explain um, what you mean by that? Well, if, if you have affirmative action and anti-discrimination laws that are so amped up as they are now, mm-hmm. um, basically, like say when you're applying to college or trying to get a job, all these companies, all these universities, they're giving a if you give a boost to every little minority group, if you give a boost to women, if you give a boost to, to blacks, you give a boost to Hispanics, then by definition, you're, it's the same thing as pushing down the people that don't get the boost. Got it. You know? Okay, yeah. So and 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 then there's the outright kind of racism of just, you know, presuming a guy like a white male is sort of dumb or a dumbass or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or a racist. Uh, always getting on the receiving end of that. So there's that type of racism. But the standard type that people are thinking of, I think that there, um, um, I think there, yes, there is racism and sexism. I think that that's probably going to be part of human society everywhere. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably better in the U.S., at least in terms of sexism, than other countries. I think the U.S. in a way is one of the least racist countries, ex- except for the fact of what we've done to the blacks because of our liberal policies and the drug policy. So the drug war combined with, so I think that the government policies have disproportionately hurt blacks. Mm-hmm. I mean, hell just bringing them over here as slaves and making them a subclass and having the, their descendants deal with the after effects of that is in a sense racist because it's caused them to be treated differently and to suffer more. For sure. So it's the aftershocks of, 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 of slavery, which was which was our our, our, our chief mistake. Yeah. Um, but uh, the the welfare system, even I, I like for example, I, people say we've gotten rid of the draft. Uh, so during the draft, of course, minorities tend to be conscripted more than uh, non minorities because they didn't have the means to fight it and get exceptions and have a rich uncle who got them off. Uh, right. So it was all right. Uh, that burden was always falling disproportionately on the poor, which mm-hmm. tend to be more minorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even when we got rid of the draft, like the government, like in the 70s or whenever we got rid of it, the government's policies still impoverish people that shouldn't be impoverished. Minimum wage, uh, inflation, taxation. So you have this underclass of very poor people, which tend to be minorities. Mm-hmm. Not so much women, but minorities, right? Um, and so they tend to join the army to pay instead of instead of joining instead of joining a drug gang or living in abject poverty, they join the army because that's their that's their lifeline. Mm-hmm. But once you're in the army, you can't quit. Yeah. So I I view that as a type of economic conscription in a sense, to be honest. So mm-hmm. um, and then of course the drug war. There's so many black guys in jail, and there's so many. Uh, fatherless uh, black families because of the welfare system and the drug war combined. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is a type of pervasive racism. Um, But on the other hand, we elected Barack Obama. Now as for women, there are policies like that that also hurt women. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even some of these affirmative action policies 
um, that are supposed to promote women in universities, I think it ends up actually hurting some women. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have a lot of women and minorities that are successful professionals, and there's quite often the, the concern that people don't necessarily know if they earned it, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, did they get a helping hand? So it sort of tarnishes the real, real achievements of actual women and minorities because people always but of course if you, if you start promoting people because of their race and their sex then everyone's going to realize that and they're going to take that into account so you can't ha- you, you can't have a, you can't have uh but the bottom line is i think that in a free market system mm-hmm. okay irrational racism and irrational sexism is a costly Okay, this is sort of the Randian argument and the standard libertarian argument that in a free market, you're going to have the least amount of racism and sexism because people have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. In a sense, all costs are internalized. Yeah. Uh, if if I just have an irrational hatred of, of of Jews or blacks or women, and I refuse to hire them in my business, but they're just as good workers, or almost as good workers, right? Mm-hmm. And all my my competitor can hire from that pool, and they'll have a bigger pool to draw from. So their costs will be lower because yeah. I'm artificially – so, you know, it's just a standard economic argument that um, racism could still would exist, but it would be either private, like it's, it's your own business. Like I only invite white people, white Christians over to my house for dinner. Yeah. Hey, that's your business. Or I live in a white neighborhood. Yeah. Um, so it would be mostly private, but, I, you know. Do you think historically so, yeah. when there have been – fewer regulations around race and sex and people could in the United States only hire white people that that was a disadvantage like that didn't work for them financially well I think that um, I think it's 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 uh, it probably didn't hurt them as much as you could imagine hurting them in a modern advanced fully functioning free market partly because of government laws that kind of protected this kind of decision. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, some of the rules about, you know, blacks can't drink at the same water fountain or sit on the same counter. This is because like the local government, like some of the businesses were like, I want to have more customers in here, but they couldn't. Yeah. It, was, it, it wasn't always private system. discrimination. It was sort of, it was sort of backed up by government. Yeah. Um, I, I think when you're, when you're coming out of a horribly racist actual slavery system like we had and then going into Reconstruction and, and the aftermath, there, it's just impossible that some people are not going to suffer from that. Um, yeah. What the solution should be, I personally think there should be lots of efforts to to repent for that sin. I just don't think it should be done by the government because they're going to screw everything up, which they've done. Yeah. So I would be like personally in favor of having private organizations that try to uh, – integrate bend over backwards to you know invite this black kid into your country club or, or or you know whatever you know what i mean yeah um to do private affirmative action and to try to um do what everyone's senses should be done this is why we have these laws is people sort of know this and the government takes advantage of it and they they pass these laws because they know um the public roughly supports it because they have a fairness sort of sense yeah um but I, 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 perfect, I personally, I'm not one of these uh, paleo libertarians who pines for segregated 
enclaves of here are the whites, here are the Muslims, here are the Christians. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I personally myself favor and think society in the future in a libertarian world would tend to be more like New York. It would be like cosmopolitan, mm-hmm. diverse. Uh, religion would gradually fade away as people got more rational. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I, so I imagine more of an individualist world um, of, of people just treating each other as individuals and more of a meritocracy, but not in a harsh way, but yeah. just, you know, like that. That's how I envision and that's what I would hope for. And that's what I think may be coming if we don't, we don't snuff the human race out. Yeah. Wow. That's a great also ending point. Like, I feel like that's the vision. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, thank you so much for being a part of this. I really appreciate it. I'm not going to take up any more of your time today. All right. Well, good luck. And Bernard, I, I was going to ask you questions because my son is uh, looking into elite colleges, but I realize that's an all-girl all college, right? Yep. So <laughs> I won't be on our list. No, but if he ends up at Columbia, they're connected. So not that that really, you know, makes a difference. <laughs> we, we, we toured there and he loved it. So <laughs> <laughs> so there'll be, a, you know. <laughs> it's, it's favorite so far is Brown. Exciting. Brown. I've got a ton of friends at Brown and they all love it. And I know nothing about yeah. it other than that, but like... You know, <laughs> Tufts, Tufts, Tufts seemed amazingly great too when we toured there. So, yeah, so far Tufts and Brown are my are favorites. Nice. Well, I wish him the best of luck. It's a t- such a stressful time. All right. Well, good luck with your project. Thanks. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks. Bye. Bye.